Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Hilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. All right, guys. So today's guest on Mom Brain is honestly one of the smartest men I've ever met in my entire life. His name is Adam Grant. Some of you already have heard of him from one of his many New York Times bestselling books or um, hugely subscribed uh, New York Times articles. Well, I should just tell you, I met him because he was actually my husband, John's professor when he was at business school at Wharton. And he um, it continues to be one of Wharton's top rated professors. Uh, and this guy is also like, I don't know, he has to be you know 35 years old. He's a child, <laughs> but still a genius, a genius child. Um, um, he's made his career actually figuring out how human beings can find motivation and meaning in their lives and live more generous and creative lives and as a virtue of studying that in adults has become something of an expert on how to create that in children so we thought he'd be an amazing guest to talk to today and and it's, uh, and it's interesting you know i mean this is our first dad on and this is our first dad on mom brain which i feel like you know is super cool and super important it says a lot about him that he wanted to come on a show called mom brain i mean you have to be like very very comfortable maybe with his yourself. wife put him up to it. Maybe, maybe <laughs> no, but he was he is such a lovely guy and and so smart and calming and just seems like a really great dad. Thoughtful thought-provoking. You're going to learn a lot on this episode. Alara and I were here like taking notes for mm-hmm. fun little experiments we can try at home. And just generally, if you're a parent who thinks that um, that the more resilient your child is, the more creative they are, the more independent they are, the more you can motivate them to have their own opinion of themselves be the thing that matters most, you are going to want to tune in. I'm loving this because you're our first dad. You are. Really? You are this our is, very well, first we're, we're, male This is kind of like new. I mean, no, it's a great thing because, you know, that was one of the things that we really discussed when we started, you know, talking about a name. And obviously, like, mostly moms are going to tune into this. But we don't want to ostracize any group. And we want to, you know, so I love that you're on. And I because, you know, dads are can dads are just as important as moms. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, maybe not. Okay, I was being nice only because you're here. (laughs) Keep Um, telling them that. No, but I mean, I love seeing like a super hands-on dad. That's really amazing. And absolutely, by the way, all joking aside, they they do lots of studies that show that having a strong father figure, a dad in the in the picture, or you know, a a a version of that, a stand-in for what a strong positive male role model looks like is hugely important for kids to see. So all joking aside, we do love our dads and mm-hmm. we need them we desperately. Yes. Yes. Nice. Yes. Um, so we're going to jump in because I know, Adam, you have to get to uh, one of the thousands of talks. I mean, this guy, you are, your brain is so in demand and it's so brilliant because um, I feel like when you started talking about kindness, compassion, um, leadership by getting away from groupthink, it was kind of novel. Like no one really knew what that was. And now I am, and rightfully so you are sort of the expert in the field and um, how you've tied that into raising strong children and compassionate children and kind children. Um, And obviously as a dad of three yourself, this is both personal experience and professional experience. Um, I'm just dying to hear your thoughts on that and and how we can do that at home. Just for people listening at home, Adam, um, and, and I met when he was my husband's professor at a business school at Wharton. And I was like, who's this student who's teaching your class? Because he's 12 years old. Um, and they quickly became fast friends. And, and the you know the rest is just us becoming like weird fans of, of Adams and just trailing him around the world. Um, but but yes, yeah, so tell everybody a little bit about this research and and you know what we can be doing at home to raise compassionate, kind, smart, resilient kids. 
Yeah, well, th- <laughs> thanks for that, Daphne. I don't, I don't. It's pretty much downhill from here. I can assure you. But she makes you sound really good. I know. I Always. should just quit. It's all true. Always. I just yeah. want Daphne to describe me every day. You could, you could be an agent in your spare time. <laughs> but no, I mean, I don't, I don't actually know anything about parenting, right? So I'm trained as an organizational psychologist. I try to figure out how to make work not suck. And after I wrote my first book, which was on generosity in the workplace, I kept getting people reaching out saying, you know, how do I raise a kid to be a giver and to be kind and compassionate? I'm like, I I don't know. I don't study kids. I study adults. And eventually I just got tired of not having an answer to the question and also realized that, you know, I was trying to teach our kids to to develop those those values. And so I started reading all this research and was really surprised by one of the things that I learned. I'm like, ah, there's got to be more. And so now I uh, I have things to say about this that may or may not be true. Where do you want to start? Well, I, so, I mean, all of this stuff is opinions. But, you know, I mean, I think that that's one of the most important things that you, you brought up already is we, our job as parents is preparing our children to become adults. So if you know a lot about adult stuff and being a good person and stuff like that, you know, it's kind of like, well, how to get there. So I feel like you are an expert, Adam. Well, and you're a dad of three. <laughs> so you definitely are. An, how old are your kids? Uh, so our kids are 10, seven and five. You know, you know. My wife always laughs at me when I get parenting advice. She's like, if people could only see you at home. <laughs> but but the do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> to put your own advice into practice. Um, we'll start with this. Start with the world is a hard place and the world is a critical place, especially with social media um, at play. And uh, how do you raise kids who are resilient to that constant onslaught of um, information, criticism, comparison, uh, just in outside influence? And how do you control against that? Yeah, I think, look, I think this is really hard. And I guess the giant caveat on this whole conversation is it's extremely difficult to be a good parent, but it's very easy to be a bad parent. And mm. so I actually think it's more important just to not screw up your kids <laughs> than, than it is to, you know, try to become like a superhuman mom who's going to create the best kids ever. I think when it comes to resilience, uh, I worry a lot about kids not feeling like they matter. So one of the biggest drivers of, of having strength in the face of adversity is, is saying, look, I matter in the sense that I know other people notice me, they care about me. And I think most parents are good at actually showing that to their kids, right? That's part of un- unconditional love and you know, making kids sort of feel like they're one of the most important things, if not the most important thing in your life. There's another part of mattering, though, that I think most parents miss, which is also knowing that other people rely on you, right? That you make a difference, that your actions count. And I think that so often we're, you know, we're worried about protecting kids that we don't actually give them a chance to, to show up for other people, right? To, to show that their actions have, have some impact too. And so one of the things I've, I've been thinking a lot about is uh, how to help kids you know, really feel like other people need them, depend on them, value them. And one of the, the ways that I've tried to do this with our kids a little bit is I've started asking them for advice when I have dilemmas. So I'm gonna, That's so great. I'm, like, I'm gonna go on stage, I have to speak in front of a big audience, I'm really nervous, what should I do? And they start giving me tips. I'm like, well, I can use some of this. But also next time they're nervous, they're going to know that they can rely on themselves, right? In the same way that I relied on them and that I have confidence in them to handle these kinds of challenges. And I think we ought to do that more often. That's such, that is so great. I'm going to start doing, I mean, I'll do things. I mean, my kids are a lot smaller than yours. Not, well, not a lot. Yeah, I wouldn't ask them for advice yet, Hilaria. (laughs) No, I think (laughs) I'm, I'm totally, yeah, I might not take it, but I think it's, I think it's important. Exactly, right? (laughs) They'll be like, candy, (laughs) candy. Um, No, but I mean, my, I noticed that my kids want to carry packages and we live in New York, so we get packages delivered and they want to carry them upstairs and and they want to help. They want to help cook. You, I mean, Daphne cooks with her kids all the time. They want to be used. They do. And I think so often 
because we know that it's not going to usually end up well. It's going to end up being more work for us. We're like, oh, no, 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 no. Fine, fine. You sit there and here's a book or an iPad yep. um, and I will do this. And you're gonna, and then they get used to that. I mean, I have my, my kids, mostly my boys because they're obsessed with the vacuum cleaner. So after a meal, because there's a lot of food on the floor, they clean the floor afterwards. And I feel like it's just great. They're like, yes, great. Time to clean the floor. And one has like a broom, one has a vacuum, the other one has a dustbuster and it's fantastic. <laughs> it's amazing. This like, is why she has so many kids, so she's an incredible cleaning They just staff. work for me. <laughs> exactly. got we got a dust. dustbuster, a broom, a, a you know, exactly. dustpan, the whole and thing. I, and I'm getting them young so they can really learn. <laughs> no bad habits. <laughs> I love that. Um, that might be illegal, but go on. <laughs> she pays they work them for in, food. She pays them in gummies. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love that, and I think Something else that that gets to is this idea of kids being able to contribute. And I love Adam for you. It's it's in the advice and and Delaria and and just making sure that the family's sort of running and that there's a schedule to the day and that they know they have a role to play in that. Um, this is taking me back to there was an article and I don't, I don't remember which specific one it was. It was a couple of years ago that Adam had written and it was about kids. Um, the way that you compliment your children. And I think this is something that I contend with a lot. You know, when your child does something great, are you meant to say you did a great job, you know, and and how do you separate from you did a great job because you're super smart and you're always going to be that way. And then as soon as something doesn't come easily to them, they are completely disoriented. Or you did a good job because you're a good person. Or you did a good job because you worked really hard. And even if you didn't actually like get, you know, I mean, my kids aren't getting graded yet, but theoretically you didn't get an A, but you worked really hard. And that's what I value. And this article really went back and forth between how you raise good kids and also how you motivate kids. And I just, I just want to, because it took me a few reads to really like have it sink in and make it part of my way of parenting, I'd love you to give people your sort of background in that and, and just how to think through that for kids all of, of all ages. I'll try. Here goes. It's, it's complicated, but it's amazingly brilliant, and it made so much sense once I got it. Well, I, I haven't read it yet, so <laughs> <laughs> I just he wrote, wrote it, it like eight <laughs> in a former lifetime. No, it, it you know it really it's where I started when I was trying to figure out you know how do how do I teach kids to be generous, and I realized that I was praising our kids wrong. That whenever you know I think you you always want to catch your kids doing good. Right, it's it's very hard to motivate them to do it, but when they spontaneously do it, it's like ah, I can jump in and reinforce that, and let them know how great it is. And so I would always say things like, oh, thank you so much for helping. You know, like our our kids love to help me take out the garbage. <laughs> yeah, that's their idea of fun for some reason. <laughs> and so I'm like, wow, you know, like th that was so generous. And then I read all this research showing that it's actually better to compliment their character and say you are so generous, right? Instead of thank you for for helping, thank you for being a helper. And what, what seems to be the case is when you, you praise their character, they internalize it as part of their identity. Right. And so a few weeks later, they've got an opportunity to help out somewhere else. They're like, oh, that's, that's what kind of person I am. And that seems to have the most impact when kids are about 8 to 10, which is when they're really crystallizing a sense of self. So if it's earlier than that, you know, it, then they're like, nah, I don't, I don't really know who I am yet. If it's later, you're screwed. It's just too late. But I think that the, the tricky thing about that is that there, there is some evidence. There's actually a study that came out this morning showing that when you tell kids they're helpers, if they then fail to help, they get really discouraged because either they feel ashamed or mm. they feel like they fell short of the person they're supposed to be. I think you have to be really careful about this and say, look, you, you know, I believe you are a giving person, but that's an identity you have to earn every day through your actions, right? And you don't just get to give up one day and say, like, I'm not, right. I'm not able I'm to live taker, up to it. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really sad. But it is interesting, even when kids are as young as three, you get a 22 to 29% increase in, in how likely they are to help if instead of saying, will you help, you say, will you be a helper? 
interesting. Because even even at three, they want to they want to earn that yes, identity. Yes, right? mm-hmm. absolutely. Now, what about you know going back to what you just said? What about when it didn't work out and being able to process that with them, or when they did behave badly? So I had um, an experience with um, my middle son, so Rafa, who's three, and Leo, who's two, um, and they were fighting with each other, which they don't do too much, but they will do. And Rafa bit Leo on the back. Yeah, it was like, it was a big moment. My sister did that to me once. And Leo, yes, and Leo comes running, and he has a bite mark. And he's actually a little bit, sometimes the tougher one of the two, and Rafa's very, they're sweet, and he'll kind of cry about it and talk about it a little bit more, And but like Leo will like, chuck a table at you because he's like a giant baby. Because <laughs> he's a third child he's and he a has giant, to. He has to because he has to. And he comes running crying and I pick him up and I go in there and it's like I can feel the steam coming out of my ears. And I am ready to do the worst thing in the world which is shame him. Um, and I see him and he's sitting on the on the on his bed and he's saying, Mommy, am I bad? Am I bad, Mommy? Am I bad? And crying. And then like my whole body melted and I was like, no, you're you're not bad. I said, you're not bad. You're, you're, you're good, but you did something that was bad and we can't do it. And then it was amazing to watch them like hug each other and kiss each other and make up and be really sweet. But it was that place where I could have really done it wrong. Um, and so how, how would you talk parents through kind of getting to a place where we can let them solve their own problems, let them be wrong and have it be okay? I do exactly what you did, actually. I think the, the, the shame response is so common, yeah. right, to, to lead kids feeling, they, they kind of feel like they're small. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm worthless. I, you know, I feel like I should just now run away and try to escape ever getting into a situation right. like this again. And I think the idea is to try to not make them feel ashamed, but to make them feel guilty, which you do by saying you're a good person, but you did a bad thing. I think kids have a hard time processing that, right, to, to separate, you know, my actions from, from my myself. character. Yeah. And so one, I think one way to deal with that is to introduce them to role models who, you know, may be heroes in one way, but also were not perfect in their lives. I think it's why kids love, you know, like the George Washington story with the, with the cherry tree, whether it's true or not. Uh, they get to see somebody who's a real moral role model, you know. Saying, who would you I'm, say are good honest. moral role models these days? These days, I think it's hard to argue with Malala. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she's a great choice. Um, actually, one of my favorites, though, is uh, Harry Potter. So there's a bunch of research showing that when kids read Harry Potter, they become less prejudiced. Really? Yeah, because they, they look at the way that muggles are muggles, looked down yeah. on, and they're like, wow, it's so horrible that wizards are nasty to humans, and that actually extends to the way they think about people. Interesting. Oh, I love that. I think, yeah, I mean, I think when you look at any sort of tales of heroes, there's always complication. There's always a conflict in their character, something they have to work through, and to tell uh, that's what's so tricky is how do you not shame your kids when they do something wrong? How do you separate action from person at a young age? You know, and I love that, that you're you're praising, you know, the the giver. You're praising that you yeah. are generous because you are a good person, but you don't do bad things because you're a bad person. And how do you you know separate those yeah. two? Um, we're obviously talking about children and that being an, a critical relationship between parent and child. But but between spouses or between partners and or parenting. Or between yourself. It's so funny. We've spent so much time together already. <laughs> I'm literally over. thinking the same thing at the same time. I mean, that's something that I've struggled with as as an adult is, 
am I what I do? Mm-hmm. You know, and how do you not label yourself? And how do you forgive yourself? Because, you know, I mean, the, the example they just gave, give. I mean, I have my moments where I just want to, like, climb under a rug. And I'm like, oh, God, oh, God. You know, I mean, how, how do we deal with that? And, again, in relationships as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a psychologist, Kristen Neff, who has these cool studies on self-compassion. Where she says what we're what we're worst at is extending the kindness and understanding to ourselves that we would give to a good friend. So you know, when when a good friend falls short, do you say like, "Wow, you're a horrible person. I wish you didn't exist." No, <laughs> no, you say, "Hey, like I know I know you had good intentions. You might have made a few mistakes here, but I still see a lot of good in you." And what Kristen does is she has people after they go through either an embarrassment or a failure or a big setback, she has them write a letter to themselves like they would if they were writing to a friend. Mm. And then in doing that, they're like, wow, you know what? This is a totally reasonable mistake to have made. And I'm going to take responsibility for fixing it as opposed to feeling like this is going to define me. And But do you think in addition to that, it's nice to have a group of people around you who can echo that same message? Because, I mean, I could write myself a letter and I'm like, everything is fine. It's going to be okay. But then if I walk out and everybody's like glaring at you, then I don't know if I'd believe myself. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we could underestimate the value of a... A support network, support right? System, I, I yeah. don't think we should. I think that it's obviously critical to have people reinforce that message, but I think too often we don't listen to them. Yeah. And we're like, no, yeah, they, they're, they're just being nice to me because they're my friend. Right. Well, their job is to tell you the truth, but also to encourage you. Well, the other thing, when my friends will say that to me when I'm giving them advice, um, I'll say, you know, it's a, my choice that I'm your friend. I don't have to be your friend. Right. It is my choice. And yeah. I show up because I love you and I care about you and I really believe what I say. That's a great response. Thanks. <laughs> I love that, too. Um, ch- talking about generosity and generosity being something that uh, what, I, what I've always been sort of amazed by is that your research oftentimes reinforces that good things that you're always told you should be generous. You should be a nice person. You should be compassionate. You should be thoughtful. But in theory, you, you're told that in a vacuum and your research actually backs it up that it actually will make you more successful to be this way, make you happier to be this way. Um, I'm really curious, though, about how you're generous. And I think we were getting about getting to this, how you're generous to yourself. But how are you generous? You have a beautiful wife. You have a wonderful, loving family. But it's a busy and chaotic family, and you guys are pulled in all different directions, and I'm sure there's a lot of stress involved. How do you stay generous with each other? How do you make time for each other? And, and you know, you being the expert that you are in this space, how do you? How are you the expert at home? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, right, is the short answer. Uh, I think the, the most useful thing that Allison and I have done is we actually have a weekly meeting where I know it sounds incredibly weird. Like, yes. Like date night or like weekly meeting? No, it's meeting, meeting night. <laughs> <laughs> meeting night. Sounds I'm not romantic. Kidding. I know. It's, uh, well, there's it's sex afterwards. <laughs> something to look forward to every week. But, we, you know, what happened was as we once we had kids and then I started traveling more, we would just have these things pile up that we each needed to talk to the other mm-hmm. about. And, like, our whole relationship became about, okay, who's going to pick the kids up on which day? And, you know, how are we going to handle this this dilemma we have around, you know, some decision we have to make in the house? Um, and quickly we were like, wow, we don't, we don't want to have these conversations every day. They're really boring. And then we feel like we're nagging each other constantly. And so we sat down and said, all right, what if we just have a once-a-week check-in where, like, Allison will give me her to-do list of all the things that she needs me to do. And I usually have a bunch of things that I'm asking for her advice or help on. And then throughout the week, we, we actually have more interesting and meaningful conversations. We also, like, I know during that week, if I don't get this stuff done, that she's going to be really disappointed when we, we get to meeting night. And so what's funny is we wrote a little article about this. I've had about 100 emails from people I already knew 
who said, oh my gosh, we've been doing that. Like I do that with my partner. We've been doing it for years. And I thought I was the weird one. I'm like, no, you're still weird. But at least, at least <laughs> not, you're not together. the only weird one. <laughs> in a good way. I love that because I do think that it's so easy to have especially as parents to young kids or kids who need a lot from you to have the bulk of your of your relationship become about task mastering like did you do did you send the tuition payment did you pick the you know the costume exactly. up from you know, whatever and i and i think um it does start to feel negative and naggy like you said and i my my intention is never to be that person i dread becoming that person but um if you don't have a dedicated forum to do it in, then you just get it in wherever you can. So we're having these periodic conversations throughout the day. And not only is it probably not as effective because you're not writing it down and you're not really remembering what they told you. You're just remembering being irritated that they told you to do that again. And I love that you kind of just bulk all the it's like a pill right it's like your vitamins you take your vitamins and then you get to you get to have the fun meal together or whatever and and actually talk about your lives, yourselves, re- re- remaining intact in that relationship that was the foundation for your family. That's exactly the case for it. Although I'm always worried, like I, you know, this idea came from having weekly meetings at work. I'm like, there should be a don't try this at home label <laughs> on a lot of it. But I actually think there's there's a reason we have weekly check-ins with our colleagues and our bosses, and isn't our relationship with our spouse just as important? And our home is a little bit like a little uh, a little office, a little office, yes. a little business. Um, Women. So women, once we, you know, get pregnant, have our baby, um, become so focused on these these other little beings, I think sometimes we can either forget about our spouse's needs um, and needs in many, some of us, um, or we can feel very insecure. And how do you as from a man's perspective, how do you keep connected to your spouse? How can you, because a lot of people say, okay, my kids are 18 years old, they're out of the house, and I look at my spouse and we don't have anything in common anymore, aside from your weekly meetings. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, how do I answer this without mansplaining, I think <laughs> is, a, is a tough one. Um, that, but th- that's why you're here. Well, okay, here we go yes, then. Let me, dad's let, playing yes, it to us. Let me tell you exactly how to run your relationship. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Uh, I have a roadmap. No, I think probably the, the place I would start is there's, um, I always go to the research, right? Because I feel like, you know, I, I could make stuff up as a, a husband or a dad, but I'd rather ask what works for a lot of people. And there's this, um, this, this research I love by John Gottman, uh, who got married couples together. And I, I think rather famously at this point, he he had people watch them interact, and then he tried to predict for the next 15 years which ones would separate. And he was able to predict divorce rates with over 90% accuracy. Wow. Just from a 15-minute interaction. Wow. And what's so interesting that comes out of this is it, it kind of reinforces the point about, about parenting that we talked about earlier, which is bad is stronger than good. It might be more important to get rid of the bad stuff than to, to add a bunch of good stuff. And so... The couples that, that end up getting divorced, one of the things they do is they're having like a 15-minute conversation about who's going to walk the dog or who's going to do the laundry or make dinner. And then you start to see these flashes of contempt where you're like, wow, this person hates my guts. And that's really damaging to a marriage right? When, right? when you're looking at the person that you love and you're seeing that they really just despise you in that moment. And so I think one of the things is to just try to get inside your, your partner's head a little bit and say, look, behavior makes sense from the actor's perspective. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. Right. And so like if, you know, if, if you're dealing with your husband and he's driving you insane, just to show a desire to understand where he's coming from and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I, <laughs> I'm not asking you to make excuses for your behavior. I just want to understand what's behind your behavior so I can make sense of it. 
um, I think that understanding is really valuable and seems to actually help couples stay together. Yeah, I think intentions. I always try to look at intentions whenever I'm I'm talking about with, with anyone, let alone you know Alec for sure, but but anyone. Because if you had good intentions going into it, if it didn't turn out great, you deal with that. But I, I totally are- love that, but I also. <laughs> Men always have good intentions, don't they? <laughs> right? So there's this this other side of it, which is okay. But sometimes your behavior actually has to live up to what you want. Oh no, wanted, of course. Right? Oh, it's oh, it's not. It's not to say it's not that it's okay. Fine. It's not okay, a freebie. Yeah. But if you card. have bad intentions right. going into, or you were like snarky, or you kind of glared at the person. I mean, all yeah. these things that happen in relationships just from living. Even if you have a great relationship, you have your moments, you know. And so I think I think you I know. I feel much better now. They feel better. <laughs> there's, there's not a pass. Good. Yeah, no passes. No passes. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting also. I do feel this way, and I feel this way for children and for adults. The the end goal is just to be understood. So many of my children's tantrums are just because they don't know how to communicate what they're feeling, what they're trying to get, what they're going through. They, they're kids. They don't know how to access that. No one ever teaches you how to access that. And so as adults, it's completely realistic and normal if there are times when you're like, I'm angry or I'm frustrated by this. I'm thinking about the the words that my two-year-old uses. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm hungry. Hangry is a big thing in our (laughs) our house, too. Um, And as a wife, I really I feel like I spend a lot of my emotional energy trying to understand more uh, uh, for my children and for my husband, because I totally think you're right. I mean couples fight couples are you know antagonistic sometimes you know how to push each other's buttons because you're with each other all the time but as you know your intention should always be to find common ground and to and to have it be a positive and loving and nurturing relationship and their study you referenced the hardest emotion to overcome is disgust and i think you only get there when you're when you stop trying to understand where they're coming from and only hear and feel how it's affecting you um are there any coping mechanisms to yeah. like if you are already in that place and it's so hard to pull back but if you're already there are there anything is there anything you can do to pull back from that yeah i think the good news on that is it's not how frequently you argue that affects the quality of your marriage or whether it survives or also how well adjusted your kids are it's how constructively you argue yeah. oh that's so, interesting yeah you can you can you can disagree constantly but if you show a little bit of respect for the other person's side uh, one of the things we see that the couples who disagree a lot sort of in a healthy way do it is they actually laugh while they're arguing, right? And so they'll <laughs> add in little jokes. Uh, my wife and I had a funny example of this. We were um, we were really just at complete odds over a, a contract we had to decide we had to sign. and there was this weird clause in the contract. Uh, I think Allison had read it four times, and I apparently had not read it as carefully as I should have, and she was really unhappy about it. There's this clause in the contract that says, uh, confidential information may not be left in bathrooms. <laughs> like, what the hell is that? And I was, like, skimming through, and she she kind of interrupted and said, I have something really important that we need to uh, edit in this contract. It doesn't mention that we also have to keep uh, confidential information out of gondolas. <laughs> I just started cracking up. I'm like, what the hell is that? And we just we just lost it laughing about the idea that you would accidentally be in a gondola and leave like, <laughs> yeah, some secret information. Dirigible gondolas yeah. and bathrooms off limits. Yeah, but it you know, totally changed the tone of the disagreement. And then um, she actually said, why don't we write this in the contract? And the people on the other side signed either it. didn't catch it or, or just, yeah, they signed it. So amazing. it's in the contract. Oh, that's amazing. So now I'm really nervous every time I go into a gondola. Gosh, don't leave anything. No, but, but I think those kinds of jokes are really valuable in arguments. And I think we we forget to make them or we think it's dangerous to make them, but that's exactly what, what helps you say like, okay, even though it feels like we're not okay in this conversation at a deeper, a deeper level, we are okay. Yeah. I always say to my husband, I know I'm going to hold that. I'm going to hold the 
knowledge that everything's gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. So let's be good problem solvers right now. Let's solve this problem. And I have the perspective to know that tomorrow will come and everything is going to be okay. And even if it feels like it's a big deal right now, in the grand scheme of things, it really isn't a big deal. Now, what about arguing and children? What about those moments where you get on your, how do you treat your spouse in front of your children? It's hard. It's really hard to go and say, okay, I'm going to save this for later. Because even yeah. if you go and you close the door and you're in the other room, your kids know. Yeah. I think um, I, was, I was reading some of the studies on highly creative adults, which showed that they're more likely to grow up in families where their parents disagreed in front of them. And, you know, it's not like they were having fistfights, right? right? But their parents are, you know, saying, look, I, I, I think you're wrong on this or I have a different point of view. And, you know, they're having really heated debates. And I think what that does for kids is it shows them, you know, there's not always one right answer. Right. And when kids see their parents argue thoughtfully, they learn how to do that themselves. But they also say, okay, I can't just follow, you know, what my mom and dad want me to do. I now have to think for myself. And it, it teaches them to be a little bit more independent in their thinking. And so I think the probably the best way to approach that is to, to teach your kids what a debate is as mm -hmm. early as possible. Wait, you just hit on something so critical, though. Uh -oh. how, how do you teach kids to be self-motivated and not to do things for the approval of their parents or their peers um, or worse even than that, worse even than that, you know, external uh, influences you can't control? So I would probably defer that question to Dan Pink, who wrote a, a great book called Drive, which is about, all about intrinsic motivation and, and how you cultivate it. I think the biggest thing that I took away from that is kids need autonomy, right? Where kids, kids are autonomous creatures from the get-go, right? And like the moment you have a two-year-old and you start to tell them what to do, you know, that, like the tantrum they show in response is a clear sign that you just threaten their, their freedom of choice. And I think that we, we probably don't give kids enough choices. I remember when, um, when our oldest was a toddler, uh, you know, she was, she was pushing back on rules that we would, we would set. And eventually we would just say, look, you have, you have three choices. Um, here are the three options for dinner. Which one do you want? And just instead of imposing one, you know, this is what's for dinner, once she got to choose one, it's like, ah, now I own that decision. Of course I love carrots. My, uh, my kids helps. choose option number four. Oh, yeah, that's that a problem. That never worked out well for me. Did <laughs> All it work of the for above? You? It no, doesn't work with like, every kid. They're like, that won't work. I'm actually going to choose, um, you know, chocolate cake. Oh, there's a response to that, though. What okay, is it? So um, can, can you play one of your kids right now? Can I? Oh, oh, play, play okay. I'm okay, so right, I'm so what, what I don't you... want, I don't want to eat my vegetables. Okay, so zero to ten, where ten is the most delicious thing you can imagine. And zero is the most disgusting thing you've ever tasted. It tastes like dirt. Where do the vegetables stand? Um, probably dirt for her. Like, would she, would she actually say zero though? She was. She probably would. Okay, so you need to go even more extreme and okay. say like the worst pain you can imagine is a zero. Okay. What do you give the vegetables? Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna play along with you, even though I think Carmen would like run circles <laughs> around all of us. Um, I will say maybe a three. Okay, really three. Yes, three. That's that's weird. Why isn't it lower? Like, why uh, isn't it a zero? Why isn't it a zero? Because I don't want to eat poop. Okay, yeah, that's disgusting. Like poop is worse. But why else? Um, because I, I don't know. Oh, you're you're confusing so deep me into, like, some, something here. So obviously, right kid, right age for it to work. But in counseling, uh, counseling psychology, this is called motivational interviewing. Okay. Where you ask a bunch of questions and you actually play the other side. So I'd be like, really? Because, you know, like, these vegetables look horribly disgusting. Why that? Why would you ever want to touch them? And then they generate their own reasons for why it's not the worst thing in the world. And then you can motivate them on their terms as, as opposed why, to yours. Why to eat that? Okay, yeah. I'm going to try it. It's worth it. a try. Oh, that's or I'm going to kidnap you, bring you over to my house, and then maybe... <laughs> if it doesn't work, try it with Alec. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we asked something fun on the show, which is 
tell us a little bit. Tell us, like, tell us your three of your favorite traditions with your family. The, maybe they seem mundane or sort of just like every day, but they sort of set the tone for a safe and and sound home. So what are some of your favorites? Okay, so one, uh, we learned from Cheryl Sandberg, actually, uh, and her husband, Dave, when, when he was alive. Uh, when, I, when I first went to their house for dinner, they went around and said their favorite thing about the day, optional worst thing about the day, and then something they were grateful for. And we've loved doing that at the table. And then recently we've added, who's someone you helped this week? Ooh, that's nice. Because uh, I think so often we're, we're talking about, like, you know, how sports are going or how grades are going. And we forget to emphasize this kindness theme. And so it's like, hey, we, we actually really care about something you did for someone else. And so I love that as a tradition. Uh, second thing is uh, we, I, I find that playing board games is one of my favorite ways to kind of continue a tradition that, that I learned growing up and that probably goes back in my family much further. Uh, and it's a great way just to, to unleash a little bit of friendly competition and say, look, we can, you know, we can want to win, but we can also be happy when, when somebody else in the family wins. And then if I had to choose a third, I would probably say uh, it would be um, so torn. I think, um, I think writing is a, is a good family tradition. So, yeah, I've become a writer. Um, Allison's you know, been a writer since I met her. Uh, and w- each of our kids, as they've learned to write, has actually sat down and written stories to share with us. And so sometimes the bedtime story is one that they wrote yes. instead of one that we We do this yeah. too. I, so Philo and I wrote, um, when she was like three, wrote this. She came up with this idea of the party wolf. And we wrote this whole book. I'm not even kidding. I can send it to you. We wrote this whole book about the party wolf who's this poor lonely guy who loves to eat cake and never gets invited to any parties. <laughs> really? And so he goes around stealing cakes because he's like, I'll get the cake any which <laughs> way I need to. And then he makes a friend and shares cake at her birthday. And it's even sweeter than any and better than any cake he's really? ever had because sharing it together makes makes the party that much more fun. But I will tell it's you, amazing. them writing, we got passed on by a bunch of publishers. We won't oh, go no. there. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I was going to say, I feel like that wolf no. has been to our house. <laughs> Where's the birthday cake always go? Um, but it was really fun to get to see her creativity come alive. And reading that b- book, which we read, you know, at least once a week, um, means so much to them because it's, and for her younger she's siblings. She's an author. She's an author yeah. and she got to illustrate and all this stuff. But, um, but I'm curious, since you are our first dad on the show, and our first dude. Um, I think as wives and as as mothers and women, we think we like we we see ourselves as being good and contributing or you know, good in certain ways that we think are really valuable, but may not ever be what you value on the other end. So I want you to tell us what what's what's your favorite thing about Allison, or what does she do that just that just makes you fall in love with her every day? Because I think that's something that's really powerful for people who've been married for a long time to remember. Oh, I have to choose really carefully I on this know, one, right? Well, there's so, so many you could choose. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't, I don't want to choose the wrong one. So, I think if off the top of my head, if I had to pick one, I would say it's uh, it's the fact that every single time I have an idea, she tells me how badly it sucks, and I say Sorry, that. I shouldn't laugh. No, okay, no. Yes, I mean, seriously. I think that I've I've gotten to a point in my career now where a lot of the you know the people that I work with are motivated to give me positive feedback, right. and it's harder and harder to get people to tell me the truth. And one of the ways I see how much Allison loves me is she does not ever want me to put out something that isn't great. But if it's a good idea, so it's not every single oh, idea. Oh, she gets it's really excited about it. About good, good about good ideas. Okay, Absolutely. okay, okay. But that's easy, right? I think it's easy to spark to something that's obviously you know a, an idea worth pursuing and. I think it's it's never when somebody's excited about an idea, it's never easy to to tell them that it's not any good. 
And she never hesitates on that. And Which like, makes you trust her more. Totally. Because yeah. then Alec, when she does love it, I'm like, wow, Alec, this must if be you're music. listening, he's always like, you're so hard on me. And I'm like, well, I you want you to be. trust me. Exactly. I want yeah. you to, to be able to tell you, like, when I love your idea, it's because I really love it. Yeah. And when I don't love your idea, it's because... It's bad. Well, how do yeah. how do you how do you, Ilaria, and how does Allison support creativity then? Because they're you're both married to creatives. How do you how does she nurture that for you? Yeah. So her the best thing that that she often does is she'll read an article. Uh, like I read an op ed uh, a couple months ago, and it was yeah maybe sixteen hundred words. She's like, like this is not your best writing. <laughs> and I started laughing, and I'm like, yeah, I didn't think <laughs> I didn't think most of this was working either. Should I scrap it? And she said, no, actually, there's there's a sentence right here. And it was like three pages in, maybe three quarters of the way. She said, I think that's really interesting. You should write the whole article about this. Wow. And then I went and rewrote the whole article. Wow. And I was like, I never would have thought to do that without her advice. I mean, that's the perfect example of your partner helps you be a better person, huh? That. That's really incredible. And what's your favorite way about how she mothers? Oh, um, I think the the thing that, that Allison does that I always marvel at is she... Um, when our kids come home upset about something, the first thing she does is she she sits there and asks them a bunch of questions and she'll listen to what happened. And then she is just the fiercest advocate I could I could ever imagine. And so I I constantly find myself responding to, you know, our kids when they're they're, you know, upset about something and, you know, kind of wanting to say, Oh, okay, you see they're not a big deal or we can fix it. And her response is always, I have your back no matter what. Um, this is not something you ever need to worry about. And it's just amazing how consistent she is in uh, in just sort of responding. I guess the, the simple way to say it is every time our, our kids are upset about something, what I get to watch her do is show them that the most important thing in the world to her, to her is is them and their happiness. It's the mama bear. Yeah, it's the mama bear effect. It's mm-hmm. exactly what I was thinking about. I love that. That should uh, be your next one. The mama bear effect yeah, is exactly. powerful. Especially, I think it's always been powerful. But I think in this day and age, to have that sense of security that there is, you know, that 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 unflinching, unwavering support behind you um, as a as a parent um, for your children is so critical. I love that. Yeah, and I don't I don't feel like that loyalty comes as naturally to me, right? So I want to be supportive, but I also want to find out is there another side to this story? Like oh, the, the kid who hit you, did you hit them too? <laughs> and she's like, I don't care. Like, the point. Our, our, <laughs> Probably <laughs> deserved it. Yeah, exactly. Like, good job. Hit him again, right? But no, our job is to That's want why number it's one nice support. That's nice to have have the two parents and two sides. That's really great. You know. Something that that I think all parents of of now um, struggle with is technology, and um, and being able to create boundaries with things like iPads and I mean I don't think our kids have gotten into gaming yet or any any of that kind of thing. Um, and then our own behavior on our devices um, and how do we parent our children well, creating boundaries, but then also not being afraid of it. Because like I'd just be like, okay, we're just like never ever going to touch it, but then they'll be as bad with technology as I am, which is not a good skill to have. Yeah, yeah I, I think the, I mean, there's there's a lot of work on this. Adam Alter wrote a, a really neat book called Irresistible last year, uh, which was all about how to deal with behavioral addictions to technology. And I think the the takeaways from that, that that I've found useful, one is just have healthy boundaries around technology, right? So no phones at dinner is an easy example. And then the second is uh, something that I, I ended up kind of deciding at some, I guess I was in middle school and I decided this and I've tried to carry it forward now is uh, I don't turn on the TV unless I already know what I'm going to watch. Oh. And there's no channel surfing that way. You don't get sucked yes. into hours that just disappear. 
But it also, when I talk to our kids about that, it gets them to think about what do I really want to watch? Yeah. And, you know, what's what's worth spending the time to focus on? And I think, watching. yeah, exactly, which is way better than just whatever the network happens to serve Do to you. You know, that that's true of eating also. And I, I mean, I just, I feel like any kind of habit you have, if you set an intention around it, it's more pleasurable. You have you derive more from it. It's not a meaningless waste of yeah, time. It's, it's a choice a, you made. It's a choice you made, and I'm relaxing. It's a purpose. This. Doing it with a purpose. Um, I know we have to let you run to your to your many other people who are dying to talk to you. And you've packed so much into our space together. Leave us with one thing we can all be doing to parent a little better today. Oh, it's always hard to boil it down to one thing. If if I had to pick one thing that we haven't covered yet, I would probably say. I think, I guess for me, um, it goes back to, Daphne, something you raised earlier, which is about what happens when your kids get hungry or angry or hangry. Uh, I think that one of the things that parents really screw up and that I struggle with all the time is just normalizing emotion, right? When, when, when a kid gets upset, your first instinct is to want to make the emotion go away. Uh, and that doesn't actually help. And by the way, until you're an adult, you don't really have the, like, the neocortical capabilities right. to regulate those emotions. And so I think one of the things I've been I've been trying to work on that I think is is valuable for parents, uh, regardless of, of what their kids are like, is to say, okay, you know, it's actually it's normal, it's human to be angry, it's human to be sad, to be frustrated, and what we want to talk about is not how to make those emotions go away, but what causes them, how to deal with them constructively, and I think as kids get older, that's a that's a skill you can help them build around emotional intelligence. I love that. Be good problem Adam solvers. Grant. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so for having me. Where can our audience connect with you? Uh, I have a website, adamgrant.net. Uh, I do a monthly newsletter on work and psychology, which uh, which has been a lot of fun to answer reader questions. Uh, I have a podcast called Work Life, uh, which is all about making work suck less. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've written a few books, uh, Give and Take, Originals, and Option B with Cheryl Sandberg. And are all New York Times bestsellers just mm-hmm. throwing it out there. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, you guys, that was Adam Grant. Um, Hilaria, what were three takeaways that you loved from that conversation? One of the things that I really loved was the fact that he asks his children's advice. And I think that that's so important. I mean, it really is our job to create really great people and to raise really great people. Um, And, you know, part of that is telling them that their opinions matter. So not just like, oh, yeah, that was great, good drawing, you know, but like, hey, this is a situation. How would you solve it? And I think that that's almost just as important as, you know, sitting down with them and doing their math homework. So I really, really, really loved that. Um, and I'm definitely going to do that with my children. Um, I loved the, um, you know, sitting around at the end of the day and and, and talking about their days, but, but being very specific. Because I know that I'll ask, you know, Carmen, like, what did you do today? And like, she never remembers. And how is it, prob- how is it possible that all children don't remember anything. Like, it's a thing. It's really a thing. But they remember when last month you told them if they were really good, they could have a lollipop. Yes, of course. <laughs> important, the important stuff. So I feel like it gives you a little bit of a framework um, for that. And then I loved his relationship talk. You know, I mean, I think that so many of us, especially, you know, on this podcast, we're talking a lot about moms um, and sort of what, and what's on our brain. We're talking about moms and what's on our brains um, and our children. But, you know, us having a support system for ourselves, which includes... Um, our partner, if we have one, and and investing in that, I think, is extremely important. It was fun to get Guy's opinion. I agree. I liked having the perspective of what actually comes through to the other side. Because as a, as a woman, I know what I'm doing and I hope that it resonates. But it's really fun to see what actually came through for him that was really valuable about the way that his wife was for him and also for their children. But I loved 
the business meeting for marriage. Yes. I think that's so yes. awesome. And I can't wait to try it because I do think so many of our conversations could go back to being fun and, and exciting and titillating as if they weren't bogged down by like just the virtue of managing a small company, which is your family. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very um, difficult board members. <laughs> Cont- cantankerous <laughs> board yes. members that they are. <laughs> and now it's time for some of our favorite things. I would say mine. So my third child is uh, Leo. It has eczema. And he has very, very, very sensitive skin. So, And I've tried every single product out there, it seems. I'm sure not every single product, but I'm still searching. Um, But one that I found works really well for him, and especially as it gets into the colder months here, um, is something called Waxaline, which is beeswax, um, amongst a couple of other ingredients. And I've used, I use it as as a diaper ointment. I use it on his cheeks. um, And it really is basically the only thing that's going on his skin right now and it's nice and thick so you know when you go for a stroll with him outside and they get that kind of like Rosacea that wind the, yes the super wind super windburned cheeks and the runny nose starts going into it and then he gets chapped and that whole it turns into this whole big mess um, I found that using it to prevent that or at least you know tame it down has been really incredible and he's had like the sometimes the worst diaper rash none of my other kids were like that but the worst diaper rash um, and if I put put this stuff on him, it's literally gone the next day. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. So well, the thing I want to tell you guys about this week is actually we're heading into cold and flu season and everyone's out there, you know, pumping their antibacterial spray into their hands. And I actually don't like to do that for my kids. Um, a, I don't want them, you know, putting it then in their mouths because if, you know, if you don't know what necessarily other additives are in there. And, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in some sort of safe bacteria is actually a good thing. So I try not to like hyper sanitize my kids, but especially when we're traveling, which we do quite a bit of, and, um, and you know, just generally in, in cold and flu season, there's a lot of germs going around. I love baby Gannix hand sanitizing. Mm-hmm. It's a pump foam. They have travel size versions and the giant ass version, which mm-hmm. I have like in every room in my house during this time of year. And I love it. It's all natural. It's, um, it, you know, they don't have any of the sort of unnecessary chemicals and additives. And for me, it's one of those sort of happy middle grounds of I'm not going to use nothing, but I'm not going to use the toxic stuff. So thought you guys I've would definitely like to know about that. coupled that with um, with water wipes. Water wipes. Water so wipes funny. I was just going to say. I was like, I also don't use a lot of hand sanitizing wipes yeah. or the um, or the really harsh bleach wipes. No, no, no Clorox in your babies. You don't Clorox I don't them. Clorox surprise. my babies. What I wasn't going to throw a brand under the bus, but like I don't use the bleach products <laughs> as much as I used to. Now that I'm reading about how much they linger and how much of it sticks. Wait, I, mean, I was joking. Are there really Clorox wipes for babies? No, 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 no. Oh. But even okay. when you're sanitizing surfaces, see Daphne, and stuff, you do it to me again. Oh I just gosh. believe absolutely. <laughs> Everything. I'm like, I was making a joke and then you go on and I was like, oh no, did I make a joke about something? Oh boy. No, Um, No. No, but I'm just totally with you. Water wipes, I swear we go through 10 packs a week because I love, they're the only wipes that are wet enough and they're cloth, it feels like. So they actually really get the dirt off. And then with Leo for the sensitive skin, that's that's what we, that's what we can use. But if you couple that with the baby Gannix. That's what we've been doing. How did you know? I mean, because the thing is that like when their hands get like really messy in the playground and then you like put some like of the of the hand sanitizer whatever brand that you choose and then all of a sudden like it's still dirty you know what I mean it's not like okay well now it's clean now it's clean 
dirt. No. no. So if you couple the two together, you can get off at least enough dirt for the yes. naked eye. And then you feel like, okay, it's fine. You can have your snack. And also for the adults out there, <laughs> my dad <laughs> kind of like broke the universe at some point a couple of years ago when he talked about when you wipe yourself after going number two, mm-hmm. if you got poop on your hand, would you wipe it with just some toilet paper or would you actually use wash, a real wet wipe to wa- uh, or, and or wash your hands it, off? Or wash it off, or wash which it is off why I bathe my children. I mean, only two of them are still in diapers, but if they if they poop, I actually give them a quick rinse off yeah. rather than just wiping it um, and unless I'm out. Yes. But like if I'm home, I can, you know, I try to rinse them off really quick yes. and that also prevents diaper rash. Which is amazing yes. and drying them thoroughly. Because if you pooped on yourself, wouldn't you wash? <laughs> I hope their answer is yes. That is between you and yourself, but I really hope you would wash your butt if you pooped on yourself. But if you don't have time <laughs> or you're not pooping on yourself <laughs> when you're using the toilet, a wet wipe is great and I love the water wipes for adults too <laughs> but don't put them in your toilet put them in the trash yes, can yes, don't this conversation has gone south as metaphorically physically as you can that is see, it for Daphne mom brain this week okay, we love bye. you guys rate subscribe suggest us to your friends review us por favor and send us mandarme sus noticias <laughs> send, us, send, us, send us any questions or comments or just general things we should be talking about to mombrainpod at gmail.com we'll see you guys next week bye this is mom brain with Alaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz mom brain is a gallery media group production